Hello and welcome to the Flucoma podcast. Today I'm talking with Dr. Jess Aslan, who is a performer, composer and educator. Jess has a wide variety of practices from solo live electronic performances to composing for string quartet and even composing jingles for radio. We shall be learning about Jess's creative process, notably the ways in which she uses machine listening in her work, as well as some of her other research interests around computers and electro-instrumental music. So Jess, hello. Thank you for being here today. Hello. Thank you for having me. You're quite welcome. Um, so perhaps you could begin by explaining how you got into the world of electronic music. Absolutely. Um... I guess to get to electronic music, it was always there as like a weirdly, as I look back, kind of like a backdrop to my life. There was some form of like interacting with technology in some way, but it not really been like a prescribed thing that I was doing um, from a really young age in my music. But it was always like if there was technology there, I, I feel like I like was exploring it in quite an experimental way. Um, you know, the standard having a tape recorder when you're a kid and going around and recording everything to they had this weird this is the only prize I ever won at school actually was like this weird piece of like binary coding thing which I wrote like I, I decided to explore it with like a bark two-part counterpoint thing whatever so like it was there music tech was there and I was learning like traditional classical music from quite a young age from about the age of five so it was like standard piano violin grades that sort of thing um which I found quite difficult. I felt like that trajectory didn't really suit my musicality. I was much more enjoyed playing by ear, you know, again, quite a standard story. Um, so yeah, dabbled with music technology all the way up and then um, started studying science at university and sort of like, you know, put down the music for a while. And then that went pretty catastrophically and was it really wasn't suited to my brain. So I decided to go back and study music um with a view to maybe going to university and maybe um pursuing it a bit more with rigorous academic studies which i did um and then i luckily got into goldsmiths and was able to study music on a more sort of rigorous academic way so it was still classical music and quite strict in terms of the performance but as the course sort of um evolved i was able to access the studio more and then basically got obsessed the second i got i got um, access to the studio i never left it very much into sort of you know um so acousmatic music things like that so but it was very much studio compositional based it wasn't really melding the electronic with the sort of acoustic performance yet that didn't come until much later um so yeah did a lot of things in the studio and then went on to continue studying in edinburgh which is where i found in performance live um in a much more um sort of organic way and that that's really where my journey's been since then working with max so I, I was really introduced to max properly um in edinburgh and um sort of was involving that in a lot of my different music making things and and, and yeah collaboration particularly sort of max allowing me to sort of integrate myself into different music making groups things like that um and also started playing since in bands as well as a sort of a separate but parallel part of my music which is still all of those things are going on today mm. yeah I, <laughs> yeah no, I, I i get the feeling that um edinburgh is is a place that kind of um a lot of people the uh 
playing with these kinds of things have, have emerged from that place. I know uh, Lauren Sarah Hayes, who was right. who was on the Flucombe project, she uh, she she uh, came from Edinburgh, and Owen Green as well. He yeah. he was he was a member of the project. Yeah, it seemed it seemed like it was quite a centre for and uh, for that kind of kind of thing. Um, yeah. So uh, you state that a lot of your work lies in collaboration. Mm -hmm. Um, so I wonder if maybe you could break down the term um, and describe the role it plays in your work and um, perhaps more generally how you approach working with with other people. Sure. Um, yeah, you got me thinking when you sent that question over. I was like, how am I going to articulate this? You've written a paper on it, but I looked back on the paper, of course. Um, so, yeah, collaboration, I guess. It's... So I think it's just working to context and working to, you know, what, what things present themselves to you and what people present themselves to you in a space and how you join together in order to sort of exploit the tools that you have as, as you know, a shared partnership or, or group um, in order to explore the tech that you're working with and explore, you know, the performance opportunities that you might be working with or the more long form development opportunities and really assessing how everybody in the group can, can contribute kind of in an equal way um, and have their voices heard, but also have the flavor of everybody's work. Um, but it also being like this, this other thing that wouldn't necessarily exist without the group of you or, or the two of you working together. So I feel like I have a, pretty and I guess that would be a standard approach to collaboration which is democratic um so e equal voices um and yeah the paper that we wrote um on breaking boundaries this is with Emma Lloyd who is an amazing violinist that I've been working with for about 10 years now we studied together at Edinburgh too um we were really lucky to sort of develop our practice together so she was studying um ex like violin techniques experimental performance techniques very interested in coming at electronics from kind of a fresh set of ears and i was obviously going with my electronic practice had worked with some um people that played acoustic instruments before but not a huge amount so together we were sort of growing our practice collaboratively and we were both quite aware of having come from you know kind of the classical world where you might have like dictation of musically what you would expect the other one to do whether you were like adopting certain roles particularly that of composer performer we really wanted to avoid that happening so we sort of used um interactive technology as a way for us to communicate without sort of those hierarchical roles in place we weren't just having like school-based interpretation or me working with emma and just being like well i would like you to play this and this she refers to it as box of tricks or she was quoting someone else was saying that so we were very aware of quite often if you see a collaboration between electronics and an acoustic instrument of some sort then um a lot of the early meetings might be perceived as as the acoustic instrumentalist like having like a box of tricks and like oh what can you do and how might i pluck that and use that and that then becomes my composition we didn't want to work like that it didn't really excite either of us very much and so we were quite careful in how we developed um our process which very much became iterative in terms of we would gig a lot of the material and develop material just through gigs and then go away practice again develop more material having listened to the previous material and then eventually that's how we wrote our album so we um recorded a lot of the live sessions that, that we did. And then we sort of like sat and listened and 
in collaboration, created a score of how we wanted the album to be and then recorded that. So I feel like we built that um, very much into our practice, the collaborative, um, active collaboration, I guess. Yeah. No, it's interesting to hear you sort of place collaboration into this a kind of long-term process. I, I mm. think um, Artemi Maria Gyoti, who was on the podcast last time, was was talked about it in a, in a similar way, yeah, and yeah. sort of placing it and it developing over time. It's not just this static kind of relationship that happens once, but it's something that gets put into a t- into a timeline and a space and in into interaction with tech and, and things like that. And it's really something de- that develops, yeah. Absolutely. Well, we were lucky. I don't think a lot of it boils down to that. If you only have the money, for instance, to do one rehearsal for one performance, then of course you're going to limit that the ability of that collaboration or if people are all over the place and only able to communicate, you know, in person a certain amount of time, that's going to limit it. And I think we were quite lucky to be, you know, in the same office for four years. So we really had like a sustained development, which I think then helped us grow separately in how we would approach collaboration in future as well. So mm. it was an important musical relationship. Yeah. Well, we'll we'll get back to some of your work with Emma. Um I'd love to hear more about that. Um perhaps for um another term um that you also associate with your practice is um with some of your practice is uh, algorithmic composition. Sure. Um, so you've written that uh, you view the concept of the algorithm as referring to the employment of some sort of process or function, which in the case of algorithmic composition results in sound. Um, mm-hmm. So I wonder if you could talk more about your conception and practical approach to algorithmic composition and its relation to machine listening, machine learning in your work. Sure, absolutely. Um, I think... The most relevant work I could now think back to in terms of like really approaching it as an algorithmic composition would be string, some string quartets that I completed for my PhD. Um, and I decided that I would like to explore a piece of software. It was called Slippery Chicken from my um, PhD supervisor. It's called Michael Edwards. He's now based in Germany. I can't remember exactly where. But he'd written this like piece of algorithmic composition software that was quite bespoke, um, quite um, very much sort of mm, built on sort of the Lisp processing um, computer coding language um, and kind of bespoke in a way that it was built around his process of composition initially, but then he developed it beyond that in order for it to be accessible for people to sort of try and put their own sort of compositional voice into it. So I was really interested in pursuing some research with this piece of software, um, particularly interested in sort of working with its algorithms. So it was very much like you you would write the code and then it, and then it would generate. Um, in in this case, it would generate a score for interpretation. So I was very interested in like working with the algorithms to discover sort of how that how the software worked on the inside. Um, so explore practical exploration of the software. Um, so like setting up a set of conditions. Um, so in my case, it was I wanted a three part um, piece for string quartet and I wanted to explore certain like mathematical um, paradigms, things like L systems um, in order to sort of explore the particular flavor that the code had. So I'm really interested in the non-neutrality of code that someone's written 
in it, how those biases can sound and how we can break those biases. So I felt that um, working with quite a strict set of algorithmic conditions allows the sort of code itself to articulate and, and make make itself sound. And then I'm sort of interested in how can I sound like my self, my voice through that code? So how can I make it sing in the way that I'd like to make it sing? Um, so I'm kind of interested in, in that sort of code-based generation of musical information, generation of data. I would consider that sort of like non-real-time algorithmic composition. I feel like the non-real-time element is important for me. I don't really use Max as a generative tool live. I would probably pre-generate the majority of my t material prior to performance. So I, I kind of like distinguish between the interactive side of my work and the algorithmic sort of like data generation side of my work. And I feel like it's two different part of my brain's uh, working, parts of my brain working. Um, so yeah, the algorithmic would then fuel through to the machine listening side of it by your generating sort of the, the conditions through the algorithm in which you can sort of create your music, whether that is generating a score for interpretation or whether that's, you know, generating uh, MIDI sequences that you would then use in a synthesizer that was then processed or whether that's generating, you know, parameter changes that you might have in your software. And then I would think of that as like, you know, the long form compositional process you might take sort of again, slow in time. And then I would um, then process sort of create uh, an interactive piece of software afterwards that you might then use in performance. Um, so that would be, I, I would see like a second part of the process and one that could probably develop on and on into its own thing too. So yeah, separate things. So the machine listening, for example, I would see as a very real time um, thing that I would do. So I would apply different forms of analysis to musicians that I'm working with or to whatever material I'm working with, and then use that for sort of instantaneous um, processing or parameter guiding, whatever, again, whatever context I'm working with. Mm. That's really interesting to hear you about, to hear this idea of the sort of the flavor of the code and, mm. and, and the bespokeness and yeah. So, so will, will you, um, will the software that's being used to be it for generating beforehand or the more kind of real time machine learning stuff. Will each uh, tool that you create be very specific to each piece, or will you recycle a lot of code? Um, how do you tend to work in in that regard? I think I de I definitely recycle code, but I'm often learning new pieces of tech. So I would incorporate bits that I really like of the old code, but then often as well, like you know, be just having um, an interest in in a new piece of software that that I want to get my head around, and 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 so obviously then that will sort of change the trajectory of, of the sound itself so yeah i'm not like, ever sort of turning my back on old pieces of software that i'm using i'm just constantly adding i guess mm. i don't mm. normally just work in one piece of software for sure yeah yeah it's often quite difficult to sort of working in this field with all these new things that are always coming out and kind of find that balance between experimenting with new stuff and and actually getting down to creating some stuff with it and oh this has just come out. That would be great. I'm yeah. Sort of setting a kind of limit to to right now. I need to create and that kind of stuff. But yeah, no. It's I I think one one of the one of the interesting questions as well. Um, uh, that was sort of floating around the Flucoma project was was in terms of interface and the tools mm. and the tools that we have at our disposal is how 
how easy it can be to sort of switch different hats between kind of programmer mode and 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 composer mode and musician mode and and obviously those hats can often often be simultaneously worn or or can be the same hat but um yeah it's quite a, it's a, it's a tricky kind of um line that uh, i think people have to to ride in this field absolutely yeah and particularly you know the thinking of well if someone else has written the code is it truly going to be in my voice and how far back do you go do you re reinvent the wheel each time do you go back and mm. you know go well someone else has created that so i'm going to have to create my version of that in order for it to be truly you know my composition which i don't subscribe to at all in fact but you mm. know mm. It, it's a discussion mm. that people have mm. 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 yeah um well i'd, I'd love to uh perhaps delve a bit deeper into your creative process. Um, I wonder if there's maybe a recent piece or project um, that you could talk about that would give us a good snapshot um, into your creative process um, and perhaps the way that you deploy uh, machine listening techniques. Um, and yeah. If you want to get technical, if you feel that would be useful, and we can, it's, it's up to you, but uh, yeah. Yeah, um, so for the last few years, I haven't really been working so much with um, other musicians. I've been doing sort of my own live setup. I've created my own live system that I've been working with. So that's been a combination of hardware that I'll play and software. So I won't probably talk about a single piece, rather an iteration of performances that I've been doing over, over the, the last few years. And there's quite a lot of sort of live recordings of performances I've done. I've not actually, as I would see, like finalized the material into like a very high polished studio work, which I actually feel would like it end it quite nicely and, and allow me to move on. Anyway, I've um, got a bit sidetracked. So the process I had with that was very much as we talked about recycling code, um, working with the max patch that I had created and performed with lots of times in collaboration with Emma and other musicians and sort of thinking, okay, how can I apply that to the sounds that I'm making in my performance system? So just working with my drum machine, my synthesizer, um, and how can I connect all these things together to create sort of a new voice um, with my work? So the first thing I did would be, would be to just explore the separate instruments. So I've got like, um, Typical setup would be probably one synthesizer and one drum machine. And then I would also be working with pre-recorded things in Ableton and also then my Max sort of analysis and processing patch in Ableton and then sort of create a long form performance system through that. So the analysis, uh, the real time analysis that I would be doing, um, just be looking for basic descriptors such as pitch, onset, um, P looking for amplitude changes and that's all quite easily done in max um and then of course you've got sort of like the instantaneous descriptors but you've also got like the more long form descriptors going on so like to see what's happening gesturally over a longer period of time say over 30 and 60 seconds and all of these analyses of course are just like captured um in numbers and you need to think about how to apply them and they would be applied depending on what circumstances i would have um, with my synthesizer and drum machine. So for some, I might have pre-prepared drum sequence on the drum machine, for example, um, have that synced up with what was going on with um, various processes in Ableton and then have the real-time analysis sort of reading what was the drum sequence I was doing and then changing um, processes that were being applied to the audio that was being captured through the drum machine as well. Um, 
So, yeah, I guess that's kind of like a whistle stop tour of the different processes going on. I mean, generally, in terms of the generation of material, it's a combination of, you know, ideas based, like systems based um, exploration. So you might have an idea for a pattern or something like that and like really explore that pattern in the one piece of hardware and then maybe put that together with the max patch and just see how they work together, see how you would tune the generative data that's sort of creating the fundamental material and then how that works with the interactive technology and like how you can tune them to work together and find, sound like a cohesive whole essentially so that would be um you know applying different analysis parameters to different processing parameters and just basically see how that whole ecosystem breathes and then add in a little bit more material and then maybe develop another two or three minutes so it's very much like creating sections that you would then like weave together into a work of different lengths i guess because the different contexts that i play in would require different even genres so different, like, you know, if I was playing late at night, um, you know, in a club situation, then I would obviously want to have more beat-based stuff, depending on who the other musicians were as well. Or if I was playing, as I did, performance in, like, um, a church situation in the middle of the day, then I might, like, tone that back a bit, and that would all just be down to, like, tuning the system. So it's kind of like the same core material, but you can push it in, like, different directions. So you can make it more harmonic and textural you can make it like more rhythmic and sparse depending on the acoustics of the space as well you know again you want to make you want to make it appropriate for the environment too i think mm, yeah i'm interested to hear about um so you talked about uh different uh sets of descriptors um got, uh depending on whether you're going to be looking at uh, very short term events or yeah. very long-term events and it, it's true that in but a lot of the artists around the Flucoma project, um, especially the sort of um, the commissioned composers that um, that worked during the project, um, they uh, many of them seem to be very short event, uh, short term focused. Yeah. And I'd, I'm I'm really interested to hear um, the kind of con configurations you you use to approach um, trying to conceive of a of a longer stretch of of, of sound. What kind of um, what kind of tools do you use to sort of get, give yourself an idea and what what kind of things are you looking for in to gain a picture of a of a longer um musical event yeah i think it all comes down really to me anyway in the research that i did on how brains are sort of like breaking down and perceiving the connections that are being created by this analysis right so the ideal is we're doing the musical analysis and then we're applying, applying a process but really it's not it's not for the technique's sake, it's because we want to know what's going on in the sound and we want to have an appropriate process that's going to glue the whole thing together and allow it to become a real time, you know, whole piece. So with that in mind, I was very interested in looking at what the brain was doing when it was perceiving, you know, breaking down the different elements of the sound. I read this really interesting chapter about sort of like this, the hierarchical structure of the breakdown of um how we perceive different elements of music and how, and how we like the strength of those relationships is by um bregman i can't remember what it's auditory scene analysis is the book super interesting book um i'm not sure quite i mean it was written quite a while ago and i'm not sure what developments that have been have happened in the psychology of listening since then but i sort of like used that as a template to work with so very much she was talking about um pitch connection that we might be conditioned to hear quite a lot so actually if you have a strong pitch connection between the input 
sound that's an analyzed and, and then any sort of like output sound that you might want to connect to it or processing that's something that's going to allow our brains to sort of glue that together and hear it as one thing um the instantaneous thing is uh, interesting because another one is synchronization right onsets when things happen if things happen at the same time then your brain is going to be trying to put them together they happen at the same time so those two things can be quite like easy hacks to use right if you just do those two things you're pretty much going to have something that's like a perceptible whole but then of course if we think about um the way we listen to music and the way we've been sort of with the music that we've surround, been surrounded with, depending on where we are, um, how that's arranged and how that evolves over time, then you can make sort of like more active decisions on your longer form um, processes based on the things that have happened previously as well. So for example, if you've got like a trend of a certain like chord progression, then that's something you might want to enhance a certain, you know, in harmony, enhance a certain set of intervals or something like that. Or if you feel like there's something, a strong rhythmic presence is something, you know, an onset pattern that's recurring, then that might be something that you might want to play with rhythmically. Um, textural things are another um, very rich sort of tapestry that you can see like textures like opening up and closing up over time and that might be you know some sort of um filter cut off that you would like connect to that in order to sort of like respond to that um textual change that's happening over a longer form so i think yeah just looking for like recurring patterns or patterns that can be like quite simply digested and then worked with either in response with or in support of you know in, in sort of a musical way mm. no it's really fascinating um it's kind of I'm working on a project at the moment where we're sort of looking at an, an analysis of different types of of multimedia and data and sort of the dynamics between close reading and distant reading and sort right. of yeah no it's 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 really really interesting to hear you talk about that yeah um it's, it's handy to have like metaphors and things to hang on, hang on to as well like even um you know the spectromorphology landscape for example to be able to just hang on to those forms of arrangement and you and then you might not you know use them all the time but it's just a nice departure point to think about things in like a different way to just like pure sonic events which can yeah. be quite difficult to make progress with mm, yeah that's great um i'd love to hear uh more so about your approach to to instrument design um you you talked about um sort of connecting things together and connecting different pieces of technology together um so uh going back to that article you mentioned um with emma lloyd so it was uh, breaking boundaries of role and hierarchy in collaborative music making uh you explained that building and extending your instrument affected the hybridity of your sound and contributed to uh, a development of your musical language um so perhaps you could break talk more about that work um but also specifically the role that instrument design plays in your work and um, perhaps also in terms of interface and the, the the interfaces that you make available to yourself when you're performing and yeah. and how that kind of sways in on your creative process yeah definitely um so um, in general, an instrument designer wouldn't be building like a gestural instrument that was like its own, you know, thing that would, someone would pick up the physical instrument and be able to play it and then there would be sound. So I'm not really approaching the okay. instrument from that perspective. Um, I, I kind of think I've talked about my different approaches to instruments 
during design quite a lot in the previous questions. It's it's sort of a similar approach and a similar tool as well. So I would approach it with sound being the primary form of interface and the way that um, we work with understanding um, a musician's sound would be like the, the very core, you know, machine listening would be in the core of how the instrument behaves. So that's really the point of control. That's the point of interface that, um, control that the musician has depending on who is you know playing into the microphone or feeding that audio that is the control so that is the instrument so nothing is happening um without sound happening or lack of sound happening it's all like built around that um i guess then there's like a secondary phase of it and i think in development of my with the work with Emma, at least, it actually was like a secondary phase of our work. At first, I was quite like parasitic with it. Um, I would only work off her sound and, and she had like full control of this, the system. Um, we felt like quite limiting, actually. So then we decided to sort of develop our work a little bit more by which I could, you know, put my own sound into the system as well. And the, there was like a secondary source of audio there to work with. So we'd like there'd be more Emma having control and me having control and then two different sound sources as well. So it became much more of a, like a shared instrument. Um, and I think at that point, both of us had like physical interfaces as well to sort of like nudge the system, nudge the instrument somewhere else. So I would really think the core of the instrument was the sort of parameter changes and the processes that was happening within the software and the analysis that was controlling that. And then everything else was sort of, you know, moving it to different states. So it wasn't really like the instrumental part of the performance, but you'd have your like your MIDI pads to, you know, trigger certain things or move certain states, you know, to have faders and stuff like that to have that control. Um, we also explored with, you know, networking communication as well, and that being part of the instrument too. So how do we, how do we sort of depart from that? um sound world communication like in the the sounders interface communication so can we do like visual communication too so that that was all built into what became the instrument in the end mm. that's a really interesting perspective and it's uh sounds like one that must be quite um quite a challenge to kind of grapple with as much as it's kind of this in, intangible configuration that's sort of exploded around many different um kind of sources and yeah no, it's, it's yeah i mean it's it's kind of it's, it's very tangible from the sound so mm. you, it's just through practice really that it would become this this entity that only we would be able to control really but we would have really hyper control over it so it, it was i guess about understanding the response that the system would have to certain sounds and certain material and we knew that so that would be kind of sort of composition part that would be within us um and then yeah nudging it as you say to, to like get to those more out of control places i guess but yeah the sound i mean using sound as the interface we had like very high level of control with it mm, yeah um so staying, staying briefly on the on the subject of instruments um so you said that uh you started out um sort of classically with the the piano and the violin and and emma is also a violinist and many of your projects feature string instruments um i was just wondering if 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 there was something particularly about the violin that um that drew you to it or or maybe it's just the result of happenstance yeah it's probably a combination of both of those things i feel like um when you're when you're working with instruments of course you develop a certain amount of knowledge through working with people that 
uh, experts with that instrument you develop a certain way of like articulating um what particular sounds you might like in a certain way whether that's through your processing or if it's through you know something written um so you develop an understanding of an instrument way more every time you work with it so perhaps it's me trying to like explore push more and more my understanding of the instrument itself so if not maybe not feeling like i'm done with it yet like really understanding you know how the thing works and and just being fascinated with the different timbres and sound worlds that come from um you know the string family in general mm. well it kind of um kind of makes me think back to what you were saying at the beginning of of, of taking a an already existing algorithmic composition system and and exploring its flavors and then seeing how you can sort of work yourself into that and sort of how you can make it sound like you and yeah yeah no it's right. really interesting and i feel like it's the, uh, the seat every time you're creating something new you're finding more of your own voice as well mm. so when i started was certainly not my finished voice i'm not there now at all so it's like this form of like discovering how you're going to make certain sounds to then take to the next project probably mm. never discover what my sound is actually supposed to be but it's quite a fun you know practice-based process of just like exploration basically and that's yeah. fun yeah um you've also produced um a lot of remixes as well mm. um so i think it's a really interesting topic especially especially um combined with uh things like machine listening and stuff uh so i was wondering if you could just describe your approach to remixing a piece of music and your relationship not only to pre-existing sound but to pre-existing music sure yeah um so there's a couple of different ways it depends again on the circumstance so it depends whether i'm doing like a live gig so i think one of the things i've got on there is like um a result of sort of me working towards a live performance and being in a completely different context and working with um being on a lineup with different musicians and thinking right how am i going to like how am i going to approach this i want to do something new and just thinking well actually there's a really great lineup here they've got some really great tracks that i would really like to interweave into my system basically um and work with and just see what happens with my patch that i've got so you you know just either take like vocal um stems or just like little snapshots or just do your own sort of improvisations around their ideas and then how you can like weave together um you know these three completely discrete artists into like one um piece that's got like a singular identity i guess so it was using my system of analysis with max again and you know i've got like a sampling granulation um processor that i sort of like bring out whenever i'm like in a panic and have <laughs> got to put together a set quite quickly um and yeah it's just like finding the identifiable features that i could then remix to create like this one unified track um over a certain period of time that that would suit the circumstances suit the venue but also like sound as like a unified thing um and yeah the other other studio more studio works would be just having a listen and just trying to find the essence of what the track is and and it's just a my process would be just a lot of listening and a lot of sitting and not working at it and just waiting to see like when my brain makes some makes a new track out of that existing track because it's playing it over and over again and then it's going to create its own version of it and going right that's my remix there so just mm. um yeah letting your subconscious do a lot of the work would be 
the way I think about working with other people's material. Mm. That's interesting to hear you talk about when you're sort of curating the kinds of sounds and ideas that you're going to be dealing with in a piece. You you talk a lot about uh, putting it into the context of 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 the space that it's going to be performed in mm. and the time and the, the people it will be performed to. And I think it's something that most musicians will do, but that perhaps you know, you, you specifically um talk about that and, and it seems to, to to have quite an important role in in the way you approach um the curation of these of these different corpora. Yeah. That's, sure. Yeah. I would say like if I decide to use a certain piece of hardware as well, it's with that in mind too. Mm. So I've got like a very, very simple commercial synth called a mini brute, which is my most versatile synth ever. It's not got any presets and it's just like really rough and ready, very simple. But I've actually found that's like, I can do that with anything. But then I've got um, my electron machine drum, for example, that I found actually doesn't lend itself particularly well with working with a third person, a third musician It's very much it, it's you know much it's to its own beat and doesn't really it, it has to be sort of the main event so it's like the choices that i make in terms of the instruments that i have as well will often be a pretty big decider on what the the final texture and material is going to be at the end not just because of the sound but just because of the internal architecture of them mm. well staying on that subject um i think uh so when i was looking through your biography and 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 fell on your phd thesis um my attention was particularly drawn because um i was also assessed by simon emerson oh, in, yeah. in my five <laughs> uh lovely man so shout out to him. uh so uh yeah the phd sounds fascinating um notably this idea of computer presence mm -hmm. um so i was wondering if you could offer some insight as to how you conceive of that actor that is the computer in your practice, um, what's the nature of the agency and parts and, and how you consider your relationship with this hardware. So you talked just now about how you will specifically choose a piece of hardware um, depending on the, the venue and, and, and the context of the performance. Yeah. But yeah, the, the, this idea of computer presence is something that I'd love to hear more about. Yeah. I think um, when you mentioned interface before, I think that's kind of because I had to think about that when you when I got your message. The fundamental of it is, you know, the different behaviors of the different pieces of software that are being used in, you know, and I think of it as assemblages of software that I'm using. I'm not just using one thing I'm using. I'm stringing together lots of different things. Um, and I feel like the computer present is like the friction in the way that they talk to each other. So I feel like that's like the gap where which I'm filling because you know um, you could do a bit of sound analysis on its own, but like what's it going to do then? What's going to happen then? Or I could generate some data from another piece of software, but it's me that's making that decision to like put it into the next piece of software. So I think as like singular things operating on their own, um, you can't feel too much computer presence. Like the it kind of like well as we dream of like a frictionless less software experience right but when we've got them assembled together and they're doing different things and we're having them talk to each other i feel like that's where we're quite aware of the fact that it's numbers um and that we need to sort of like get those things to communicate to each other um so i think the presence is like the experience of working you know in that space of a variety of different algorithms and how we're choosing to join the dots 
So mm. their presence is only really become apparent when you've got that friction of them, you know, working or not working together. That's kind of, I feel quite, it's quite a physical experience, I guess, when you're coding. Um, but I, yeah, I guess that's how best I can articulate it. Yeah. No, that's something that really, really does resonate with me and something that I, I find really interesting. And that idea of, of friction and, and the kind of going against the, the kind of very, I suppose capitalist kind of ideal yeah. of, of frictionless software that's uh, an ease of use and just sort of jumping into it and you know an idea that kind of completely negates and and forgets this idea of relationship with the the object or the tool that you're using and you know the it, it's not only is it something that's probably not possible but it's it's something that I think should be embraced and explored this kind of friction between different bodies and so uh, absolutely yeah. yeah but it's not the ideal for us to be aware that these things aren't just like ubiquitous and exist for our use without you know priorities of money making had behind them so i think it would be a very sad day if there was no friction between those things for sure prompt prompts for like machine learning you know the prompt based ai you know creative generative stuff that's happening now is kind of like next level interface i guess again something that could be really inter interesting to explore that space but i guess with prompt based like exploration of um creative spaces again you're sort of like cutting down the interaction with the algorithm a little bit and the ability to go in and like push it in certain ways and really understand what's going on i feel like that black box way of working is quite difficult um to penetrate really mm, yeah no definitely i couldn't agree more and they're, and they're uh, down now with they're trying to be take chat chat beat gpt away uh, yeah <laughs> <laughs> yes no but it's no, it's a really interesting topic and um one that yeah i've, I've seen approached in in many different ways uh, with different artists around the flucoma project and it's been yeah. it's definitely something that i've i've come to has has, has really interests me as a, as a researcher yeah. and it's, yeah i think it's really interesting um we were talking uh just before uh the chat so obviously um you're not only a, a performer and musician you're also um a researcher and uh and teacher um so uh you you were telling me that um you'd started actually uh teaching some of the flucoma um tool set um in some of your lessons so i was i was wondering um if you could perhaps talk a bit about that and also um how you approach teaching these kinds of technologies to to students sure. um so yeah we you we just use it in a couple of the lectures actually so um this is for my master's module at goldsmiths it's called interactive and generative music um and we just look at different um ways that we can use max in order to create sort of like um generative approaches or interactive approaches to you know whatever sort of ways that you want to work and and sort of like give inroads to the tools so like basically explore a set of tools together week on week so we look at different topics each week and each of it's just a different facet of working with max and so we look for a couple of weeks that use that machine learning, sort of the implications of that, what it actually means. So we lay out, you know, um, things, difference between supervised and unsupervised training, but obviously it's it's not a very long time that we're looking at, so it's quite 
um, broad and, and um, doesn't go into too much depth in those two. But the way that we explore and understand the practical implications that machine learning might have on our work would be, so I, I have a couple of patches that I've got taken from your tutorials, the Flucoma tutorials, and it's basically this idea that we're not writing the rules. The computer is discovering the rules, and that's the, the you know the key di difference between you know them choosing to program some complex MIDI mapping compared to using machine learning to do that. Um, and I find having the tools like Flucoma really accessible because you can quite easily demonstrate that, and it just sums up in a million different ways, in you know just in quite a tidy um, unit what what the difference is between the machine learning things for itself versus you having to painstakingly code every decision the computer is making so it is really good at um looking at paradigm the paradigm shift between sort of like just rule-based coding versus um the data so you know being the thing that defines the patterns eventually um so yeah we use particularly um we use a regression there was a really someone did a really nice tutorial on a re regression algorithm that that um i can't remember who it was but it was it's on your site anyway so we use that specifically in order to sort of like understand what a regression algorithm is and and how that might be actually something that we could work with um quite easily in in our systems mm. and by curiosity is that um is, as, um, as, uh, are these students already quite well versed in the kind of technological field or it's a range as with i find mm. many most music technology classes you've got a complete range but mm. people are always coming at it from super interesting approaches so you'll get some people who have had no coding experience whatsoever some that have code coded for you know 10 years mm. Uh, mm. and really it caters for both because there's it's rich so there's like a lot you can go into a lot of depth with it but also actually it's quite simple to just plug and play in, in mm. your software that's why i use it really because there's not, yeah. not a huge amount of setup that you need to do because we're working within mac so it's in that environment anyway i'm not a huge fan necessarily of running parallel softwares and things like it can be quite complicated if you're teaching it a big class and trying to get loads of bits of software we've got that friction right so um mm -hmm um i a try place where it's less useful <laughs> yeah right exactly um and i feel like it's is the best i don't know the the best bit of machine learning that i found within the max environment um for people for students to explore and really understand what's going on yeah yeah the, it's true that we kind of try to design the tutorials and help files with sort of different points of entry and um that can be taken up at, at, at different levels but yeah no, it sounds like a really interesting course i remember my introductory kind of music technology course i think after like three months we'd just seen fm synthesis or something right but uh yeah no no it sounds uh it sounds really interesting um cool uh so perhaps um as a final question um I'd love to hear um, about how you see your work uh, developing in the future. Um, how do you see yourself continuing to use or not um, the kind of computational and machine listening techniques that um, we've been talking about? Um, how do you see your work going forward? Yeah, it's a good question. Um, so I have done, I spent a bit of time retraining or just learning some new techniques. So I, I did some work 
did like a master's in uh, data science, artificial intelligence. Wasn't it was creative led. Um, so it's been very much like nuts and bolts of machine learning, um, with a view to then exploring different creative machine learning tools um, to, to like discover you know the origins of them so it's very much about transparency in those tools where the data sets have come from um who, you know who the teams are running which teams are running them um what the output is you know just like practice-based exploration of machine learning tools um which i don't think i'd have had the confidence to do had i not done that that training to really understand what what we're actually dealing with here in terms of you know statistical statistical analysis so it's i've been sort of like stepped back for a couple of years on the applied practice research of these various algorithms, but I'm just going back into it right now. So the future for me in the over the next year or so, um, I'm spending quite a lot of time just exploring the different tools out there, um, looking at the prompt-based stuff, which I feel is like a completely different ball game. Um, I'm finding it quite interesting but also like finding looking forward to like finding the limitations of it so i'll be doing a lot of that through like practice-based work how do i create a track with this particularly interested in the machine learning um algorithms in terms of their time-based evolution of stuff i think because there's quite a lot of convincing tambral sonic stuff going on right now i'm not yet being necessarily convinced with the more long-form compositional um machine learning approaches so kind of like looking forward to seeing where that goes and contributing to different um projects with with sort of like a musical approach to using these algorithms i guess great well that sounds very interesting and i'm looking forward to seeing how that will be coming along in the future thank you cool so um well thank you so much for talking with me it's been really really interesting um so as with all of the podcasts um everything that we've uh, talked about will be um living on the page on the flucoma learn website where this um where this uh can say tutorial where this podcast is and um and there will be a link to that page in the description of uh this video on youtube as well and we're also now um on uh all the audio only uh podcast uh streams um yes, yes so that's uh that's a new exciting uh aspect of the podcast that uh, people can delve into um so jess thank you so much uh it was really 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 interesting and um i hope to speak to you again soon likewise lovely to meet you keep Bye. an eye on your, on, on your writing as well yeah i'm kind of interested i think we've got like similar interests yeah 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 definitely yeah what's going on in tech and how we can explore it yeah definitely cool thank yeah. you so much thanks a lot right. Bye.